Let's now turn uh, to Psalm 45. The title is To the Chief Musician Set to the Lilies, a Contemplation of the Sons of Korah, a Song of Love. My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. King's daughters are among your honorable women. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. And the daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. She shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you. With gladness and rejoicing they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's palace. Instead of your fathers shall be your sons, whom you shall make princes in all the earth. I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people shall praise you forever and ever. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, much of our world, many people of our world, uh, whether they profess uh, to be Christian at all or not, uh, have no problem with the celebration of Jesus' birth. And uh, they may feel that they can get along pretty well with the Jesus that's, that's pictured on Christmas cards. And uh, familiar carols, uh, including those that may sing of Bethlehem and make reference to a manger and shepherds. Uh, carols that are played in songs and perhaps sometimes publicly in the streets. Uh, they may have a, a, a cheerful effect upon many people who never really worship the Savior. And to so many people, Christmas is, uh, is all about, it's, it's all about family. Or it's all about a kind of general goodwill. Maybe it's associated with uh, shopping or gifts or uh, Hallmark romances, a whole great variety of things. And uh, the baby, the baby is just a part, another detail, if you will, of the, of the cozy atmosphere of Christmas. It kind of goes right along with the sleigh bells and the lights and uh, the ho-ho-ho of Santa. And to many, he's no more real uh, than Santa. He's just part of this cultural celebration. 
and certainly to many people. Uh, there's nothing about this baby in a manger that inspires any kind of uh, reverence or awe uh, or makes any claims upon them in such a way that obligates them to any kind of specific response to him, a response to him as an actual living person. Uh, but the true Christ is the king. He is the king of kings. And uh, he excels in every kind of true beauty to those who have eyes to see. He excels in uh, the gracious speech with which he is revealed in Scripture. He excels in his mighty deeds. He indeed is gracious. And he comes humbly and uh, yet... He cannot be ignored. He cannot be taken lightly without heavy consequences because he is the Lord, because he is God. And he is one who now in matchless joy rules over all the nations. And whoever really knows him, whoever truly knows him, feels his claim upon their hearts. Whoever knows this Savior feels his claim upon upon their possessions, upon their time, upon their very lives. And our text is about that claim, that Christ the King, Christ the Bridegroom, has upon his bride, has upon his church, who responds to him uh, with a devotion and love that uh, truly is characteristic of those who know and believe in this Savior. The bride, of course, in this passage is uh, a type, a way of referring to the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are, there are, his, are historical um, elements to this psalm uh, that uh, identify it in a certain time and place, uh, but this kind of imagery is quite incidental to the main teaching and point of this psalm. And there are things in uh, this psalm that in no way could be said of Solomon, words that we've already heard, like, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so these incidental features, as as uh, significant as they are, and there are uh, a number of them that we're not really giving attention to, they are really in the service of the main theme of this psalm, which is indeed about Christ and about his church. And the glory of Christ, the glory of her king, calls for the bride's devotion. That's our theme that we're going to be considering, particularly from verses 10 and 11. And uh, we see from the outset that this devotion involves a devotion of separation. The summons there uh, is, Listen, O daughter, Consider and incline your ear. Forget your own people also and your father's house. It's a call to separation. You are familiar with uh, the institution of marriage in the opening chapters of the Bible and how God brought the woman to the man. And then we have this divine uh, revelation of the significance of that marriage union in the words, therefore shall a man leave 
his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But the emphasis there is upon leaving. And indeed, the emphasis there is upon the man who leaves father and mother. And that indeed reflects the, the characteristic initiative that the husband takes in uh, entering into this marriage union. But of course, the principle there applies uh, both to the wife as well as to the husband. Because there is a kind of departure from the former relationships of the home and the establishment of a new home and a new family. The church is to forsake the world for Christ without exception. That means without any exception as it pertains to individual Christians. Listen, our text begins. Listen. It's like this is the first lesson of faith. When God came to Abraham, who is the father of all believers, and whose faith and response to God, whose trust in the promised Savior serves as a pattern for all believers, the first word that God spoke to him was, get out. Really, get out from your own country, from your own family, from your own household into the land that I will show you. Abraham was called to live a separated life, called by God. In the book of Hebrews, we're given account of uh, the faith of, of Moses. In chapter 11, we read that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He forsook the palace, if you will. He forsook the pleasures, the prestige, the honor, all the worldly advantages of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt. And here again we have simply another example of a response of faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of the response of the disciples, how Jesus came to them and said, follow me. And James and John, they forsook their net, their fishing boat, and their father. And Levi uh, forsook his tax collector's booth. We have forsaken all, the disciples said. Yes, indeed, they had responded, responded to Jesus by forsaking the uh, the connections and the loyalties of their life before Christ. That's responsive faith. In fact, Jesus universalizes that response when he says, whoever does not forsake everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Actually, he's, it's more specific. He says, whoever of you does not forsake everything that he has cannot be my disciple. No exception. Becoming a Christian involves forsaking the world. Now, we'll see what that means more specifically. But from the outset, we need to see how significant that is in terms of what it means to respond to Christ. Marriage is an exclusive relationship. And that means that it excludes all other lovers. Marriage excludes uh, any other rivals to that kind of devotion that is to be uniquely 
enjoyed between husband and wife. There's to be no divided affection when it comes to the marriage bond. And that applies. That's a, that's a picture, really, to the call of Christ to his church. Now, again, the point is not physical separation, even with respect to marriage, even though a new uh, family is established, and ideally a new home in terms of physical uh, proximity and connections. Sometimes that may be observed for a time, but it involves some risk. But even where there is a, a physical separation by distance, even over many miles, it doesn't mean that the relationship is abandoned doesn't mean that uh, married couples no longer have anything to do with mom and dad or brothers and sisters. And, and the kind of separation that Christ calls is not to be thought of, first of all, in terms of a physical separation. Although, sometimes, in order to be a Christian, you have to break with ungodly friends. Because their influence is, in fact, incompatible to your loyalty to Christ. It's one or the other. Sometimes that's absolutely necessary. Sometimes it may mean breaking away from certain places that you go that involve compromise with your loyalty to Christ so that you'll never go there again. But this separation is far deeper than any kind of physical separation. It means separating from whatever would provoke the godly jealousy of our spiritual husband. He is a jealous God. That's why he forbids idolatry and worshiping him according to our own imagination. He is jealous over his love for us and our love for him. And we are to separate from whatever would provoke his jealousy or whatever would conflict with our loyalty to him. Now, of course, that means overt sin, right? That means Christians must repent of their sins. It means that they must discontinue the practices of law-breaking that characterizes their life. To be very, to be very practical and blunt with some of you, it might mean you have to quit doing what you are currently doing. You have to quit doing what comes to your own mind and your own conscience when it has to do with how would you show that you really take God's claim upon your life seriously. You'll just quit doing that. You'll repent of it. And if you ever fall back into it, you'll repent again with sorrow. Because you know that to serve Christ means that you must separate from your sins. You might say, those are broad categories. It goes deeper than that, doesn't it? It's not only overt sin, but we must be separated from relationships or things that get in the way of our devotion to Jesus Christ. I quoted uh, just a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 14. Where Jesus says in verse 33 that uh, so likewise, whoever of you uh, does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's kind of bringing a summary to what he had said earlier when uh, he turned to a great multitude that was following him. They were following him, literally, physically. The question is, are they going to really follow him spiritually? with a loyalty of consecration? And he says to this multitude, it's like he's thinning the ranks. He's not simply concerned with multitudes. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Again, we don't mean that Jesus was actually commanding people to literally hate their father and mother, brother and sister. 
But in comparison to Christ, there must be no rivals to their loyalty. Not only in terms of relationships, but with respect to their own lives. Yes, and his own life. In other words, consecration to Christ means a separation from those desires, those priorities and values that we would follow and serve wherever they conflict with our loyalty to Christ. There's only one to take this as Christians. There's only one way to hear this, and that is to be convinced that Christ is worth it. In terms of the, the way those details work out in our lives, well, that's a lifelong struggle with sanctification. That's why Christians live a life of repentance, because we're always inclined to follow the idols of our hearts. But we know, we're convinced that that's foolishness. And it is at odds. It's in conflict with the love of our lives. Who is God, who is worthy of our heart, our mind, our strength, the devotion of our very souls. He is worth it. Why, why are some women willing to, to change their, their plans? Their, maybe their academic, educational plans. Maybe, maybe totally adjust their, their aspirations for a career. Or even abandon it. And follow some guy across the country. Well, because they think he's worth it. Because they're willing to uh, join their lives to his in such a way that follows things that would be in conflict otherwise with their individual uh, life. Following Christ and forsaking the world is forsaking what we cannot keep, ultimately. And things that cannot ultimately satisfy for what we cannot lose, and riches which can never be exhausted. And if we're not convinced of that, though we do not act consistently with it, if we're not convinced of that in our hearts, and if that's not our aim, we yet to have to come to know the Savior for who He is in His supreme worthiness. It's a question of what value we place upon Christ, isn't it? That's the cost of discipleship. And it's a cost that really can never be too high. Isn't that what Jesus taught in parables like the parable of the treasure that's found in a field? Or the, the parable of the pearl of great price? The kingdom of God is light. In some of the most, some of the shortest parables, a few verses, one or two, get right to the heart of the matter. The kingdom of Christ is like people whose hearts are captured by the glory of the king. And it's worth abandoning and forsaking everything else for that relationship with the Savior. Let me ask you children, would you want your Christmas gifts? Maybe you have gifts. Maybe they're under a tree. Maybe you know mom and dad have some really nice stuff for you. Maybe you're going to get gifts from others. Would you be willing to give up those Christmas gifts? For Jesus. Now, you might say, that's not really a fair question, right? Because, you know, yeah, you believe in Jesus, you love him, but, uh, right now, you know, there are these gifts and you really want to open those gifts. And, uh, well, well, yes. I mean, if you put it that way, but that's so unrealistic. Well, maybe it is in a way. And, uh, I don't deny the fact that Receiving gifts from your family can be pleasurable and enjoyable. And hopefully, it increases your gratitude, not only to your parents, but your gratitude for to God. 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because your lives are enriched in so many ways. You enjoy material blessings in a way that ought to make you very thankful to God. But to go back to that question, you know, don't you? You do know that these presents that you may receive, they won't ultimately give you uh, the, the kind of satisfaction and pleasure that will last. They'll probably break after a while. And you know, you know, don't you, that they can't provide for you the forgiveness of sins. And they can't provide for you peace, real peace of heart. And you must know that. You must believe that. Even though you may not feel it, you must be sure that these things are found in Christ only. And without Christ, all the gifts in the world would be empty. Because the gifts themselves, they can't fill up the kind of emptiness that you might even yourself feel in your heart sometime. Maybe a kind of emptiness combined with some fear. And you don't have to be an adult to experience that. You don't even have to be a teenager to experience that. Sometimes children, before they reach their teenage years, sometimes are really sad and they feel really empty. You don't have to be a widow to experience that. You don't have to be a single person who has wanted to marry for many years and you're still alone. You don't have to be uh, a childless couple to feel that. You don't have to be someone in an unhappy marriage to feel that. Or someone whose marriage has come to an end to feel that. All you need to do is be a human being. And if you're not a block of wood, you are convinced that there is a kind of emptiness and longing and dissatisfaction and disappointment and depression about life in this world. And if you've never felt that, I question whether you're human. And if those feelings have not led you to cling to Christ ever more deeply, do you know him? Because only he can bring such peace that satisfies the hungry soul. It's nowhere else. And children, you need to be convinced of that. You need to keep praying that the, that the grace, and, grace and the goodness of Jesus may become more and more precious to you. And you'll hear those prayers. Christ alone is worthy. And he calls us to love him above everything else. I've been recently uh, reading a, a book that uh, was given to me by one of our members concerning the experience of Christian martyrs today, those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. Many stories from different parts of the world, sometimes young people, 16-year-old girl who is permanently disfigured because she's been beaten and burned because of her relationship to Jesus Christ. Many people who are disowned by their family, persecuted by their family, who suffered great loss in physical, uh, physically and the death of loved ones for the sake of the gospel. It's good to read those kind of books once in a while. It ought to humble us. It ought to make us feel very, very grateful for the freedom that we have. And it ought to challenge us and make us think, do we value Christ like these people do who are willing to suffer and die for him? It's worth reading those kinds of things. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. Or to be a king of a vast domain and still be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world 
can afford. That calls for a separation. And positively, consecration. It's really th- uh, the same thing, but from a positive point of view here. The bride's beauty uh, in our text appears in this dedication. Uh, listen uh, to verse 11 that begins with the word, So, so the king will greatly desire your beauty. Forget your own people and your father's house. So the king will greatly desire your beauty. Uh, this desirable beauty is here described in our text as the consequence of this separation. Now, in any kind of typical love story, the woman's beauty is why the man wants her in the first place. He's captivated by her face, by her smile, by her shape, by her laughter, and hopefully by her character and by her heart. And it's, in effect, a situation where he says, I desire your beauty. Therefore, leave your mom and dad and be my wife. In other words, it's the beauty that attracts him. But it's like you have the opposite. You have the reverse in our text before us. A, a different a different kind of order. Because when the Lord comes to us, there's no beauty in us. There's no attractiveness. There's the deformity of our sin, of our corruption. And only in union with him do we become beautiful. To him, by grace, it's his work that makes sinners beautiful. And the beauty of this consecration is the goal of his love. It's not the the reason for it. It's the goal of his love. Think of Ephesians chapter 5, which uh, is addressed to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But how did he love her? He gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's the goal. He loved her to bring her there. He didn't love her because she was there. But what that means now, brothers and sisters, is that this king greatly loves and greatly desires and greatly delights in the devotion that you show to him, imperfect though it is, as he carries on his work in your life. And in this connection, let's also say that there is a comparison to marriage. The more devoted and loving a wife is to a godly husband, the more lovely and desirable she becomes in his eyes. There's a correlation there. Of course, it works both ways, but there is a correlation And he shows it, and he shows it with loving words and affection and warmth. And Christ calls us as his bride, whom he loves. And he calls us to know more of his love, a love which passes all understanding. And the way he does that is by coming to us again and again, week after week, day after day, saying, in effect, Give yourself up to me more and more. Believe more fully in my love for you. Rely more completely on my grace to you. Be prayerful and be careful in your walk with me. Give me more of your time. Be more frequent in your praise. And become more zealous 
for obedience. And do all this, do all this from love and gratitude for my grace to you. And as you do that, as you continue to do that, you will know more of my love for you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we heard this summons to a separated life. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, does that mean that by separating from sin, we somehow obtain or earn our status as God's children? No, no, no. It means that by walking a separated life, more and more we live the significance of being God's children and the comforts and the delights of having Him as our Father increase. The next verse makes that clear, where it says, Therefore, having these promises, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Or perhaps another passage that is even more to the point, obviously, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, where Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, that's not a program for unbelievers to achieve the manifestation of Jesus. That's a calling to Loyalty to the Savior with the promise of increasing experience and knowledge of his love for us. And that's clear in, in uh, the following verse where Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. It's the Holy Spirit who communicates the riches of Christ's glory to his children. And that's an ongoing thing. That's a progressive thing. And there's a correlation between our consecration to him and our enjoyment and our experience of fellowship with him. We need to believe that too and pursue that. Finally, a devotion of adoration. Because he is your Lord, worship him. Now again, here there's that obvious contrast and difference between uh, earthly, earthly marriage. The best earthly marriage is a partnership. Hmm? There are different roles, right? Sarah uh, showed respect for her husband. She called him Lord. But that was simply a way of a respectful address. It doesn't mean that she was calling him the Lord or worshiping him as Lord in that sense. No, the husband is the head of the wife, but he's not the God of the wife. Marriage is a companionship of equals before the Lord. Husbands and wives are heirs of the grace of life together. A shared grace that both brings both husband and wife into fellowship with the King of Kings on the same footing, on the same basis. But our heavenly husband is the Lord. The church is loved by him and he is loved by her as her God. And so we adore him, of course, with an adoration that wives may never show their husbands. We adore him with the adoration of worship. The glory of the king, who was born in Bethlehem, calls us to fall down in worship.
Oh, come, let us adore him. That's the, one of the Christmas carols that we're familiar with. And uh, let's not neglect that. We're, we're, we're observing that. We observe that today by special attention on uh, this passage in connection with uh, this celebration. We do that tomorrow. But let's not do that personally, thoughtfully, maybe privately also before the Lord. And express your love for him as your Savior who loved you first and brought you to respond to him with devotion, of separation, consecration, and worship. Let's hear this summons joyfully, not only as we think of a baby, but as, as you look to your king on high, not just on Sundays, certainly not just on Christmas, but every day and throughout our lives until we appear before him with the whole church in that heavenly palace, completely beautified and perfected by his grace. Amen.